We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like Kobe in a fourth quarter. This is the Day More NBA podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Podcast coming at you Wednesday, July 27th. I want to hit one more episode here before we sort of hit the desert of NBA things to talk about in August. It's, it's good, getting a little dry already. The Wolves roster is pretty much wrapped up barring some sort of trade. They did sign Nathan Knight to the final roster spot last week. And now really all they have left is that second and final two-way spot, which means we don't we don't have much left to speculate on. Uh, so I figured on this episode, we'd kind of recap the offseason by taking some questions from you guys that you submitted. Um, obviously, I'm not going to be able to get to all of those questions, but I did try and sort of take note of where most of those questions were coming from and try to focus on those topics. And I pinned that down to, to four topics that will hit. Those topics are D'Angelo Russell, uh, how he's perceived in the media versus what his real impact on the game is. Uh, Secondly, the Wolves exploding payroll uh, now that they added Rudy Gobert and how that will be impacted by the NBA's salary cap, which is, again, set to sort of spike here in the next few years as a new NBA TV deal comes in. Uh, Also, many of you just asked about Rudy Gobert and how the Wolves might play as a group with Rudy in the fold. So we'll dig in there, too. And then we'll wrap up. I thought these were kind of fun questions. Um, We'll wrap up by looking at how the Wolves might miss the players they lost in the trade. Don't feel like I've really hit on that a lot here as we've talked a lot about the Go Bear trade. So we'll talk a little bit about how the Wolves, had they been able to keep one or a few of those players, which ones might have have fit this group best. But we'll start the questions with D'Angelo Russell. And the first question I got was from Devin Hedberg. He asks, I am by no means a Delo stan. In fact, I think he's a good but not great player. However, the national media almost ubiquitously treat him as if he is a net negative player. What do you think causes this near consensus from people who clearly rarely ever watch the Wolves? And yeah, I mean, this has been something, right? We've been kind of navigating with D'Lo for a few years. There's there's a difference between his perception and his reality. And I think the answer to, to start with when we're talking about the way D'Lo is viewed in the national media and why he's viewed that way, I think, the answer starts with Delo's defense. Uh, he's, he's pretty unambiguously a minus defender, though that might be a little overrated. I think some people put him like in the very bottom of the barrel. I don't think that's accurate. But 
At the same time, only one year in his six-year career has D'Lo graded out as an above-average defender, if we use defensive estimated plus-minus. And every year other than that, he's graded out as a bottom 25% of the league defender. But if we're trying to answer the question of why the national media you know, feels this way about him. I don't think those numbers, defensive numbers, are are the the main reason. I think the main reason is that his defense doesn't often pass the eye test. You know, less so last season, but you know, through his career, Delos sort of had a tendency to kind of conserve energy on defense, which isn't unique to him. A lot of players around the league do that. But when I watch it, it looks to me more like at times he sort of calculates, okay. Guy's got to step on me. How much of a difference will it make if I really try to scramble back into position here? Is that worth exerting extra effort that I then won't have on the offensive end? And I actually get some of the logic there. But at the same time, that doesn't look good on the eye test when it happens. That's why we you'll see you know a clip, not just with D'Lo, but you know, players around the league, a clip where it looks like a lack of effort on defense. And that sort of, I think, creates this eye test narrative around a player. And when you put a bad eye test narrative on defense with some bad defensive numbers, then that's where I think you're going to see the national media sort of latch on to that. I mean, same goes right for, for James Harden or other players around the league. But I think the, the media also distinguishes a difference between Harden and D'Lo because they feel even if you rip on Harden's defense, it's pretty hard to argue that he's anything but an elite offensive player. D'Lo is not a Harden-level offensive player, but he is a very good offensive player. But even in that very good offensive game, there are some nits the media like to pick with D'Lo's offense, right? D'Lo is not an uber-efficient shot maker. He's above average in points per shot attempt, but not by much. You know, He also turns the ball over at a relatively high rate and doesn't get to the rim or free throw line very often. And to be honest, that was when the Wolves traded for D'Lo, that was kind of that was pretty much my analysis of him before he joined the team. But I think after watching him you begin to gather a greater appreciation for how impactful he is as a passer, kind of connecting the dots on the whole of the whole offensive group. And I think the media sort of underrates how much that elite part of his game raises the tide for the players he's surrounded by. We saw that last year, right? And how much he helped the second unit last season when he played with them. And it's underrated how much that dot connecting makes up for his just slightly above average shooting efficiency. For the past four seasons, I thought this stat was crazy. For the past four seasons, according to offensive estimated plus minus, D'Lo has been a 90th percentile or above player. Estimated plus minus estimates a player's impact on the score. It does not only measure how efficient D'Lo is individually when he's on the floor. It measures how much more efficient the offense is as a whole with him on the floor compared to when he's off. And to be 90th percentile or above for four straight seasons without having high individual shooting percentages, you have to you have to be having a significant impact on the group you're out there with. And I think that's something the national media might miss because it's something really I think you only pick up, or for me, it's something I really only picked up by watching him play night in and night out. And I think even if D'Lo is a bottom 25% defensive player, you can't sleep on the idea that he's consistently been a top 10 offensive player. I went through and I looked. There's only been 17 players in the league over the past four seasons, including D'Lo, that have been 90th percentile or above offensive players for all four of those seasons. Donovan Mitchell's not on that list. DeMar DeRozan's not. Jason Tatum, Zach Levine, Shea Gilders-Alexander, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, DeMontis Sabonis, Jalen Brunson, Brandon Ingram, Jalen Brown, 
none of them can say they've been a 90th percentile offensive player for the past four seasons. So to answer Devin's question, what causes D'Lo to be viewed as a net negative player? I think it's about all of that. The numbers, but more importantly, the eye test, to many suggest D'Lo is a poor defender, and the media latches onto that. His individual offensive shooting numbers are also, they're, they're not golden, which kind of furthers this narrative. I think you'll see this season a greater appreciation for D'Lo because the national media will watch him more. And also because D'Lo will be doing his thing on a winning team this season. That matters too. Peter Vasky also had a D'Angelo Russell question. We'll get to here. I have heard that if we don't re-sign D'Angelo Russell and let him walk, we lose that salary spot now that we have Rudy Gobert. It sounds like we need to either re-sign him or trade him to keep that salary spot. I'm wondering if you could clarify that situation more. Well, the simple answer to this question is that even if the Wolves just let D'Lo's $31 million contract expire at the end of the season and do not bring him back, they will not just have that $31 million in cap space to pay someone else in free agency. And the reason behind that is because the Wolves added a very expensive player in Rudy Gobert. Gobert is on the books for $41 million in that 2023-24 season, and that completely cannibalizes the max cap space the Wolves were set to have for that season, even if D'Lo does walk. Now, why is that? Because the answer is because Gobert was traded for players who are on expiring contracts for the most part, right? I mean, Malik Beasley is on a $16 million expiring. That'll be off the books next year. Patrick Beverly at $13 million expiring. Even Jared Vanderbilt's contract is non-guaranteed for that second season of his deal. And then it's just Walker Kessler and Leandro Bomaro who are on super cheap rookie deals. I mean, after this season, Gobert has three years and $131 million left on his deal. The only guaranteed money of the players traded away, the only guaranteed money of the players traded away after this season is Walker Kessler's $3 million for next season. $131 million of Gobert versus $3 million of the outgoing players is why the Wolves are now in a pretty restrictive financial position. So functionally, the Wolves didn't only give up the players and picks they did by making the, go the trade for Gobert. They also gave up their cap space for that season and actually seasons beyond. This makes D'Angelo Russell not only as a player, but as an asset far more important to this team. But even in that, there's nuance there too, right? And that nuance is sort of right the, the opportunity cost of deciding to let D'Lo go if you take that path. If they let D'Lo go after the contract expires next season, they have no means to land another $30 million player. Because the cap space is gone, they'd be limited to about $11 million in spending power next summer with the mid-level exception, which, as we saw this season, the mid-level's not nothing, but it's not a ton. The Wolves used it on Kyle Anderson. So you sort of have to ask yourself, if you're re-signing D'Lo, even if it's for $30 million a year, is that more valuable than being limited to just $11 million in spending next summer? On its face, I think you can make an argument either way, right? If D'Lo is not a value at $30 million a year, is it worth having him on a quote-unquote bad contract just because your other options are underwhelming because they're limited to that $11 million mid-level? Which all of this brings us to the whole idea of preserving the D'Lo salary slot. The reality of the Gobert trade plus Cat's Supermax, plus an impending max for Ant, means the Wolves are basically never going to have cap space again. It's honestly, 
it reminds me of Golden State. You know, it's what they've been doing for the past, you know, four or five years. Their team is so expensive, so far beyond the salary cap that the only means to sort of replenish their talent with high-priced talent is to trade a high-priced player for another high-priced player. For Golden State, this was the logic, right, for trading, ironically, trading for D'Angelo Russell in the first place when they did. Once Golden State knew KD was leaving, they scrambled to preserve the salary slot by trading KD for D'Lo. This was about having a player on their roster that made a lot of money that they then could, again, trade for another high-priced player if they found the need to pivot. Of course, that led them to Andrew Wiggins. The Wolves are in a similar spot. They might want to re-sign D'Lo or give him an extension just so they have another expensive player on the books that they could down the line, again, trade if they need to. Again, they definitely would not have to trade him. Maybe D'Lo's fit ends up being perfect and they keep him. As I've said, I think the D'Lo fit now in the context of this roster is pretty great. At the same time, by giving D'Lo an extension, you give yourself, right, you give yourself some optionality of having an expensive player that you could use in a trade to match salaries for another expensive player. That's the idea of preserving the D'Lo salary slot. Let him walk, and it will be nearly impossible to ever go out and get another $30 million player to put around Cat, Gobert, and Ant. So why haven't they done it? You know, this seems like it could be something beneficial down the road. Why, right? Like, why hasn't he gotten an extension? Well, the hesitation is that if you do, if you do sign D'Lo to, let's say, a four-year $120 million extension, there's some risk in that. If the rest of the league looks at $30 million a year for D'Lo as a negative asset, then it doesn't really matter if that salary slot is preserved. It won't have that value of easily being able to be swapped in a trade for another $30 million player. It could be, for the Wolves, it could be the Andrew Wiggins situation all over again, where, you know, sure, you have a $30 million player, but to turn that $30 million player into a different $30 million player, you probably have to attach a first-round pick to it, just like they had to do with Andrew Wiggins. And the Wolves don't have any first-round picks that they can trade. So the risk in salvaging that salary slot is that you could get stuck with D'Lo, which, again, might not be a bad thing. He might fit great on this team, but that's the risk. You could get stuck with him long-term. The Wolves definitely have considered all of this, but ultimately, at least thus far, they've decided not to do it. Now, that doesn't mean they won't do it, There's not really a deadline here. They could see how things go through the beginning of the season and then could give D'Lo the extension midseason, right? Like they did with Patrick Beverly last year. But even that comes with some risk. If things are clicking with D'Lo and Gobert, as again, I think could be the case, and D'Lo's having a really good season, the Wolves could offer him midseason something like a four-year, $100 million extension. But if D'Lo's playing well, he might feel that he could get more in the offseason and decide not to sign that midseason extension. He might want it now. He might not want it then when his value's gone up. I mean, this is what happened with Jalen Brunson in Dallas, right? And I think it's a good example. Dallas offered Brunson an extension in the middle of the season once he was playing well, and Brunson opted to wait it out until the offseason where he eventually left Dallas, signed with New York, and Dallas was left completely empty-handed. It's a complicated calculation I don't know what the right answer is, but that's what people are talking about when they bring up the idea of preserving the D'Lo salary slot. All right, let's move on from D'Lo. Let's stick to the salary cap topic a little bit and get into how the NBA is set to sign a new television deal that will dramatically 
increase the salary cap. Jared Shai asks, Dane, was hoping you could touch base on the NBA TV deal that renews in a couple of years and the impact that will have on the salary cap. I've seen articles that are speculating that there will be a massive increase in TV revenue again, and I assume a significant portion of that will go into increasing the salary cap. Yes, Jared, the NBA is due for a new TV deal come 2024, and that will mean a cap spike. Similar, but maybe handled a little differently than the cap spike in 2016 after the current TV deal was signed. You remember that cap spike as the reason the Warriors were able to add Kevin Durant. You know, and side note here, uh, John Hollinger wrote a great article kind of on all of this uh, related to the TV deal and the salary cap spike. That's on The Athletic. Uh, he wrote it on Tuesday. This is probably a topic that's a little better suited for writing than podcasting, but I'll try and hit on the relative Wolves points here. Uh, the most apparent way this cap spike will impact the Wolves is in how the contracts of Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert will be viewed, right? Cat signed this Supermax contracts, four years, $220 million, uh, a few weeks ago. And those numbers to some people, I mean, to anybody, $220 million for four years, that's daunting. It seems wild to be paying anyone over $50 million a year. And, you know, to some people who cite Cat's lack of winning in his career, it might you know, 50 plus million a year might seem ridiculous. But the important thing to note here is that Cat's locked into this supermax prior to this cap spike. 50 million might seem wild right now, but after the cap spike, players will be signing supermax deals for upwards of 70 million. A supermax is just 35% of the salary cap. And Cat's deal will be for 35% of the cap when it kicks in in 2024. But after the spike, that 35% might look more like 25 to 30%. We don't know specific numbers yet, but a pretty significant difference either way. You know, barring some sort of catastrophic injury, Cat's deal economically could very well look more like a bargain than an overpay. And the same goes for Rudy Gobert. Gobert is in year two of his five-year, $205 million Supermax contract himself. He has four years and $170 million remaining on that currently. Again, a number that right now seems very high. But in two seasons, a deal after the cap spike that could actually look relatively affordable. Gobert is set to make $44 million in 2024-25, and he has a player option for $47 million in 2025-26. Again, players of Gobert's caliber by that time will be signing deals in those years for over $60 million. As an aside, prior to looking into some of this stuff, I figured Gobert was a lock to play out all four of those years of his contract in Minnesota. You know, he's, he's on the books for four years, 170. I figured, you know, he's locked in for that. But I think looking into it, the spike actually makes it a decent proposition that Gobert takes that player option and opts out of the $47 million in the fourth year, becoming an unrestricted free agent because, you know, he'll be, I think, will he be 33 at that time? Um, he might still be able to lock up. 50 million a year just because the numbers are going to be so crazy at that time. Maybe he opts out and signs a two-year, $100 million deal uh, with the Wolves or, or elsewhere. I, I think for this reason, maybe we should be viewing Gobert's deal as a three-year deal for $123 million rather than as a four-year deal for $170 million. Remember, we used to always have to do this with Malik Beasley. He signed the four-year, $60 million deal, but it was really a team option in the fourth year. We're like, okay, it's, it's actually a three-year deal. It's kind of like that. That's kind of the way I'm viewing the Gobert thing. It'll depend on you know, how the numbers shake out. And similar for Cat, too. It is possible that Cat also opts out of the final year of his Supermax extension prior to that final year because he also 
has a player option on the final season of that deal. But player options or not, the main takeaway here, I think, should be to not get too scared of the fact that Gobert is on the books for 40 plus million a year and that Cat is about to be on the books for 50 plus million a year. Those are numbers that are scary in this current salary cap environment, but not so much in the post TV deal salary cap environment that's coming. I think also related to this topic, the, the cap spike, it, it makes it makes it more than a lock that Anthony Edwards will sign a max contract once his deal expires after the 2023-24 season. It also means that max deal for Ant will be a bargain because Ant will ink that deal prior to the cap spike. That 25% max Ant is eligible to sign after the cap spike will look a lot more like a deal that is for 20% of the cap. And that deal, 20% of the cap, will carry Ant through his age 23 to 27 seasons, his early prime. And prime Ant, for less than 20% of the cap, that should be a wild bargain. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of Steph Curry's first deal after his rookie contract. Remember, Steph signed a four-year, $44 million deal after his rookie deal because there was all these concerns about his ankle. So he signs this $11 million a year deal in 2013 and locked him up for four years. And $11 million at that time was 19% of the salary cap. Those concerns obviously ended up being way overrated. Steph went on to win two MVPs while on that $11 million a year contract. And it also helped the Warriors be able to sign Kevin Durant when they got the extra boost from the previous cap spike. I think a main takeaway here should be that the cap spike will be a huge win for the Wolves as it connects to Anthony Edwards. And then finally, the last person that's going to impact too, not last person, but high-level person that will impact is Jaden McDaniels. McDaniels is eligible to sign a new contract the same year Ant is. You know, I've been kind of ballparking that deal around $20 million annually, but I hadn't really considered the cap spike. And I think this cap environment could easily lead to McDaniel signing his next year, next deal for more than $25 million a year, maybe $25 to $30 million annually. I know all these numbers sound insane because we're used to this. But we've just gotten this stagnant cap era, like the cap hasn't gone up much because of the pandemic the past few years. We're used to the numbers where they're at right now. But what we should all be doing is adjusting our views of what a $30 million player is, what a $40 million player is, even a $50 million player. As always, as a rule, it's best to think about these salaries as a percentage of the salary cap and not just as pure dollar figures. All right, let's mix in a quick break here. Come back, talk a little bit more about Rudy Gobert and the players he was traded for. Today's episode is brought to you by 20 by 20 Solutions, a Minneapolis-based technology consulting company that works with your business to help you build and sustain success. A great front office puts together a winning team with a coach who can put together a winning strategy. When leadership does its job and it all comes together, that means success. Success in business isn't any different. Business leaders need to find the right mix of technology, strategy, and talent to make things really work. And that's never been truer for growing companies. 20 by 20s team has helped grow companies from thousands of customers to tens of millions by helping businesses across a wide range of industries, from consumer technology and healthcare to manufacturing and even human spaceflight. Reach out to Clark and Ben, who are Wolves fans and fans of this show, by emailing them at team at 20 by 20 solutions.com. That's T E A M at 20x20 solutions.com. And their team will review your needs and help you put together a plan before you need to make any commitments. 20 by 20 solutions, technology, workflow, architecture, strategy. They're your sixth man on a winning team. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we are back doing a mailbag here, answering some lingering questions as we move into August. These questions, these last questions, will be more Gobert specific. And the first question comes from Sean Lammers. He says, Dane, the Wolves ranked first in turnovers forced per game last season, while the Jazz ranked 30th. The Wolves ranked fourth in fast break points per game, and the Jazz ranked 27th. Similarly, the Wolves led the league in pace, while the Jazz were 24th. Given all that, should we expect the Wolves to come down maybe significantly in all those metrics and play a more conservative defensive scheme while Rudy is on the floor, while also slowing things down in offense for more pick and roll opportunities? Or do you think Finch is going to push Rudy to play at the Wolves pace and get out in transition? Well, when Chris Finch has gotten behind the mic since the Gobert trade, he's clearly illustrated he's very excited about Gobert and this new roster, but he also is often asked at those times about how this group is going to fit together. And Finch's answer pretty much always is, no, we're going to have to figure it out. And I think some people take that to mean that Finch feels there's a chance this won't work with Kat and Rudy next to each other, that it might be difficult. I don't think that's what Finch means. I think what he means is we're going to figure out, we're going to have to figure out how to make this work best, right? And figuring out how this works best is about looking at the environments Rudy has thrived in in his career and the environments Cat has thrived in. And acknowledging those are two different environments and figuring out how to create an environment that is effective for both Cat and Rudy. Do you want a style of play that forces turnovers and gets out and runs a high pace style? Or do you want to play a little bit more conservatively on the defensive end, prioritizing rim defense over turnover generation, and a little bit slower on offense, prioritizing pick and roll opportunities? Figuring that out, those questions, is what Finch means when he says, we're going to have to figure it out. And I think if you gave Finch truth serum, he would tell you, I don't really know yet. I think a lot of defining the style of play for this team will come from seeing it all on the court together, starting in training camp, through the preseason, and probably even into the beginning of the season. It's hard to know what Gobert will look like 
in the scheme and style of play the Wolves ran last year because Gobert has never played in a system like that. Doesn't mean he can't do it. We just don't know how well he can do it. Gobert's presence will also put pressure on Finch and the rest of the roster to play a little bit more like Utah did. Again, that could work well, but we don't know because we've never seen this roster play that way. That all, I think, should lead us to believe it will be some sort of fusion of styles. My guess, though, having covered Finch over the past few years, is that he will choose one side of the conservative to aggressive spectrum and start the foundation there, right? That's kind of his style. Lay down a foundation and then stack more diversity of style and scheme as the year goes on. And if I had to guess today, my guess would be that it starts more so with the status quo, a more aggressive, up-tempo pace like last season. On the surface, that puts more pressure on Gobert than it does on Cat, because it's different for Gobert and fairly similar for Cat. But I think that is too simple. It ignores the fact that Cat is already being put under pressure by moving from center to power forward. To me, asking Gobert to adjust to the style of play while being able to stay at the same position is a pretty good compromise with Cat, who is familiar with the status quo in the style of play, but has never played power forward as his main position. That's my guess, somewhat informed by the idea that I know Finch is the type of coach who prefers an aggressive type of defensive scheme and also the type of coach who prefers an offensive scheme that relies more on ball movement and more relies on ball movement than static pick and roll. Another Gobert question here from Sean is, am I right in thinking that the teams who like to go small, like the Clippers and the Warriors, are the matchups the Wolves want to avoid come playoff time, while teams with traditional centers like the Suns, Nuggets, Grizzlies, Pelicans are probably the more desirable matchups? Yeah, I would say for sure. Uh, And I'd add the Mavs to the Clippers and Warriors as the teams you'd prefer to avoid. I mean, we don't know what Gobert will look like in the playoffs on this roster against teams that play smaller and spread you five out, but we do know that did not go well for the Jazz against the Clippers and the Mavs these past two years. A bigger team that plays as big as they are, as the Wolves are, is obviously preferable for this Wolves group because I don't know if there's a bigger team in the league. I mean, it's not just Cat and Gobert. Go down beyond the front court, go down the line. McDaniels is a huge small forward. Ant is very physical for a shooting guard. D'Lo is big for his position as well. I mean, we talked a lot last year during the season about how Memphis was the ideal first-round matchup for the Wolves, and I think that's probably true again, but maybe for somewhat different reasons this time. Last year, Memphis, right, they were a good matchup because the Grizzlies only have one primary ball handler that can kind of create offense for themselves in John Moran. And that fit the Wolves' defensive scheme from last season perfectly because their whole defensive philosophy was blitzing the ball handler, get it out of his hands, make job pass it, rotate to close out on shooters, live with Kyle Anderson or Dylan Brooks attacking your shifted defense. The Wolves were comfortable with that. I think Memphis is probably the ideal matchup if we're isolating it to the top Western Conference teams this year too, but again, for a different reason. Yes, the Wolves can again throw the high wall at Ja, you know, for sure in the non-Gobert minutes. Maybe Gobert develops that as well. But more importantly, I think Memphis is just constructed similarly to the Wolves with a jumbo front court and a freakish athlete guard. And isolating for that, I'll take Cat, Gobert, and Ant over Steven Adams, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Ja Morant. Now, that's not to say it's, it's not just three on three, right? It's, it's not a wrap against Memphis just because of that. Memphis is the more disciplined team, which we know makes a big difference in the playoffs. They also have Desmond Bain to provide a level of shooting on the wing that the Wolves can't match. Memphis 
is also a good defense defensive team that gave the Wolves offensive problems last year and probably will again. But generally speaking, I think that is the ideal archetype for team the Wolves would would fare best against in the playoffs. The Suns, Nuggets, and Pelicans, as what was it, Sean, who asked this question? Um, you know, they they play bigger as well. They're a little bit different than Memphis. But I think the thing to focus on is they don't really have the means or desire to really spread the Wolves out like the Clippers, Mavs, or Warriors can, which isn't to say, I mean, particularly the Suns and Nuggets, I mean, they're going to be tough. They present plenty of issues for the Wolves as well. Of course they do. But yeah, on paper, at least as of now, you're hoping the Wolves draw a team that can easily, that can't easily punish you with a spread offense the way the Clippers and Mavs can in particular. Another question following up on that was, how do you feel about Finch's plan to stay big when teams go small? Finch has said that a few times. We're going to stay big. We're not going to go small. And, you know, I, I'm cool with Finch saying that. I, I agree. I mean, you've signed up for staying big. You're going smaller to a significant extent just doesn't make sense on this roster. You got to go big. Your two best players are huge. There's there's also this like fallacy that bigs have to be played off the floor in the playoffs. Like, no, you choose to take your pig off the floor because you feel there is a value in doing so. Like, again, with Memphis last year in the playoffs against the Wolves, they sat down Adams because there was a marginal value in not playing him. Did they have to do it? Would they have lost the series had they stuck with Adams? I don't know, maybe, but they they still play pretty big. I mean, Xavier Tillman started, played a bunch next to Jaron Jackson Jr. He's not exactly a small ball big. I mean, the, the point is Taylor Jenkins saw a marginal value in doing it with Steven Adams, and he took that value. But it's going to be pretty hard for Chris Finch to say there would be a value in sitting down Gobert or Towns so as to be replaced by Kyle Anderson or Torian Prince. I don't think you're getting any value there, if, if it's anything more than situation. Yes, at times it will make sense to go a little bit smaller. But like as a rule, you're not getting value if you're the Wolves by going small. Going smaller, having one of your players being played off the floor is a choice. It's oftentimes it's a profitable choice, but this is Rudy Gobert. It's not Steven Adams. It's not Jonas Valanciunas. It's not Ennis Cantor. It's Rudy Gobert. Will hurt the Wolves sometimes to be huge? Sure. But I think it makes sense to stay big. All right, let's move on to some questions about the players that were lost in the Gobert trade. I feel like, again, I haven't talked about that much this month since the trade. So first off, we have a question from Kevin Abbas. Kevin asks, are we underestimating how much the Wolves will mal- will miss Malik Beasley coming off the bench, specifically hearkening back to the few games he missed last year where the bench unit just had zero juice? Uh, my short answer to this is yes, I do think we are underestimating how much the Wolves will miss Malik Beasley. I mentioned this stat many times throughout the season last year, but I'll do it again here. The only rotation player in the league that shot more threes per minute last season than Malik Beasley was Steph Curry, and it was only by a little bit. Steph Curry made 38% of those threes, and Malik Beasley made 37.7% of them. Now, Steph's guarded differently. Steph's taking more difficult threes because he's taking them off the bounce far more than Beasley is. But at the same time, I mean, we watched Beasley shoot him last year. He was, he was, he was not taking easy threes. They might have been more catch-and-shoots for Beasley, but they were the type of movement, catch-and-shoot threes, hand-in-the-face that the mass, the vast majority of the league never takes. Beasley took a lot of difficult threes, and he made nearly 38% of them last season after starting the season really poorly because he came into the season out of shape. I mean, Duncan Robinson, Donovan Mitchell, Buddy Heald, Kevin Love, 
Davis Bertans, the next highest volume three-point shooters in the league last season, they were all a ways behind Beasley's three-point volume, and most of them had a lower three-point percentage than Beasley did too. Now, I suppose the question, though, is how valuable is that type of shooter if they're also a, a minus defender like Beasley is? You know, through a playoff lens, they're significantly less valuable, right? Not only Beasley, but those other guys like Duncan Robinson, Kevin Love, Davis Bertans, they all were limited or played off the floor completely in the playoffs. You know, Buddy Heald didn't make the playoffs. He would have been a defensive problem too. Donovan Mitchell didn't get played off the floor in the playoffs because he does more than just shoot, but his defense was, all, was also poor. This is kind of a style of player. I do think the Wolves will... They the would miss Beasley less in the playoffs, but I do think the Wolves will really miss Beasley through the regular season. If he was still on this team, Beasley would very likely have a very good regular season and would probably move the needle fairly significantly in terms of regular season wins. The question Kevin asked was, how much will the Wolves miss Beasley coming off the bench this season? And I read that as more of a regular season question. And yes, I think they'll really miss that. And that's because the Wolves... They didn't add much shooting this offseason. Bryn Forbes and Austin Rivers both provide shooting, but they're minimum contract players who might not even be in the rotation at all. Jalen Noel, right? He probably stands to eat up more of Beasley's minutes than anyone else on the roster. And yes, Noel can shoot it, but as we've been over many times, Beasley and Noel are very different styles of shooting guards. While I think Noel can do a lot, I do not think he can replicate Beasley's movement shooting. Only Golden State and Utah shot threes more frequently than the Wolves did last season. In large part because Beasley's gone, I think the Wolves will drop fairly significantly from being third in three-point volume last season to something lower this year. And along these lines, we have another question from Ryan Fortson. Fortson Ryan asks, if you could have kept one player from the Gobert trade, real age and contract factored in, who would it be and why? It's kind of related to the Beasley topic. Um, I think this is an interesting question, especially if we think about it through the lens, again, of how the players traded away. This is this is fictitious, but how the players traded away would fit in the makeup of this new Gobert roster specifically. And I think the obvious inclination would be to say, you know, Pat Bev. Um, he was just the best player of, of those, of Beasley, Vanderbilt, and Beverly last year. Like, Pat was the most impactful player of those three. But at the same time, I don't think that's the clear-cut answer here. As Ryan said in the question, we're considering age and contract into this. So let's just start by laying that all out there. Malik Beasley is only 25 years old. He's the most expensive player going out in the deal. He has two years, $32 million left on his contract with that second year, again, being a team option. Patrick Beverly, 34 years old, one year, $13 million left on his deal. Jared Vanderbilt is 23 years old, has two years and $9 million left on his contract. The second year of Vanderbilt's contract, non-guaranteed. And then Leandro Balmaro, 21 years old, three years, nine and a half million left on his deal. And then there's Walker Kessler, 21 years old, four years and 13.5 million left on his rookie deal. I think, you know, considering those five, they're, they're actually somewhat close in terms of value to the Wolves, you know, when age and contract are factored in. But the player I would choose is Jared Vanderbilt at 23 years old on his two-year, $9 million deal. I think both Beverly and Beasley would be more positively impactful this year, but not by a ton. You know, considering how the roster changed, all three of Vanderbilt, Beasley, and Beverly would be bench players on this roster. If you choose any one of them, I think we're talking about like a 20-minute-a-night role. Off the bench, I think you can make a fair argument that the need for guard depth 
wing depth or big depth is all relatively similar. You could definitely use Beverly in the mix at point guard with D'Lo and J-Mac. And as we were talking about with Beasley, he would inject the wing group with shooting that none of the other wings can really come close to. And then with Vando, you know, he could fit in the big mix as a discount Gobert offensively and as a big who can guard big wings defensively, which I think low-key is maybe his most underrated skill for Vanderbilt. So without like a glaring impact delta between those three, I'd go with the youngest and cheapest of the group in Vanderbilt. I mean, there could be some creative contract extension that you theoretically could have given Vanderbilt to keep him long-term, but he's also, he only makes $4.4 million this year and $4.7 million next year. And on a roster that is facing a serious financial crunch, I think there's a lot of value in that for the Wolves. Not to mention that the Wolves currently sit you know, $3 million below the luxury tax line. So if you magically could keep Bando, you're only $1.4 million into the luxury tax. Money you could definitely shed before the season ends and the tax is calculated. Whereas magically keeping Beverly or Beasley, you're a tax team for sure because now you're $10 million into the tax. That would be very difficult to duck. So yeah, Vanderbilt would be my pick, even if I think he would be a slightly less individually impactful player this season than Beverly or Beasley would be. That's also just sort of philosophical for me in that I don't believe this is a championship or bust season for the Wolves. I'm more thinking about having the best possible team for two or three years from now. And to me, I think Vando fits that best. If it's championship or bust, yeah, you take Pat Bev. All right, that's all I got for you today. Uh, like I said, we're entering the NBA desert here. Uh, I'm lining up a few guests for the beginning of August, but episodes will naturally be a little fewer and further between over the next few weeks. Of course, that's always subject subject to change if anything crazy comes up. But until that crazy happens, I'm Dane. Talk to you soon. Peace out. I'm feeling better, I hope it never stops, yeah Green it hard so you can find me in the crowd, yeah